Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of December 9th, 2021 High Grade Credit Outlook. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our expectations for the path of credit spreads in the year ahead. Finally, we conclude today's episode with a discussion on recent headlines related to LIBOR cessation, including the extension of LIBOR through 2023 and what it means for participants in both derivative and cash markets. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it's actually been three weeks since we had our last High quality spreads edition of the Macro Horizons podcast. We had Thanksgiving, and then last week we had the monthly macro edition. So it's been three weeks. Why don't you get us caught up to speed on developments in the credit spread market in the past couple of weeks and where we are now? Yeah, well, in November, we saw some pretty strong outperformance of credit spreads, narrowing by about 20 to 25 basis points. Since then, spreads have run into a little bit of a headwind here. Interestingly, both moves, the narrowing seen in November and the first few sessions of December, and then the more recent headwinds that spreads have run into, have come without a really strong driver. And to me, this weakness we've seen over the past few sessions could point to just some listless trading as the holidays set in and liquidity falls into December, right, Dan? Well, you make the key point that there hasn't really been a clear driver, and I agree with you. We saw credit spreads narrow as much as six basis points last week which, believe it or not, was the third largest weekly narrowing since credit spreads normalized in the summer. And there really wasn't much to point to. If anything, it seemed like there was more reasons to expect the risk off. We had somewhat disappointing news on the vaccine front with the delivery of Pfizer's vaccine underwhelming expectations for the rest of this year. We also had a disappointing payrolls number. We had lack of really any progress on stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C., not to mention reinstitution of widespread lockdown in certain jurisdictions amid a continually spreading virus. And to me, that's indicative of this now consensus view for what to expect in 2021. We'll get to that. But yeah, Dan, you make the other point that we have seen the rally start to lose steam. It's actually been three consecutive days of credit spread widening as of yesterday, which is the first time since late October we've had that. So it does feel like the rally is losing steam. And I agree with you that today, really for the first time this year, I'm starting to get that sense that the holiday malaise is descending on the market. We're not seeing much movement, and there just sort of seems to be this like collective acceptance almost that next week's Fed meeting is going to be the last tradable event of the year. And market participants are sort of left to just kind of check for stimulus and Brexit headlines and go through the motions until we get to next Wednesday. So in the very immediate term, what do we expect from spreads for the remainder of the year? I think you've got some reasons to expect spread narrowing, primarily from stimulus. I think that that stimulus deal will get done, though we've been wrong about that before. So a little conviction there. But with Democrats and Republicans sort of talking the same number now, $900 billion or so, it seems like they should be able to get that over the finish line. But then you've got some headwinds coming out of Brexit and also now just lack of secondary market activity. Now we've made it to mid-December and heavy January supply right around the corner 
potentially bringing with it maybe some new issue concession. Don't expect a lot of investor activity, which may sort of cancel out any stimulus headwinds. And to me, that leaves us with the Fed likely determine the path of credit spreads here, whether or not we're going to finish narrower or wider from here. And what's your read on the Fed meeting for next week, Dan? Yeah. So as you mentioned, this is the first really live FOMC since at least September. And there's a potential that the Fed announces a WAM extension to its treasury purchases next week. This would come on the heels of some reduction in stimulus that was driven by Treasury taking back funding for those emergency lending facilities. And we think adds to the impetus that the Fed will want to add some more stimulus to the system using what's potentially the last bullet in the chamber, and that's increasing the maturity of their Treasury purchases. It's unclear if the Fed's going to do that now or do that sometime early next year, but it would pose a near-term tailwind for credit spreads, I think, if they do do that. I tend to think you're right, Dan, but I'm also not convinced they're going to do it. You described it as sort of their last bullet, but it's certainly one of the few they have left. And with financial conditions at year-end pretty much under control, I'm not certain they'll want to use one of their last bullets right now. And even if they do, it's worth noting that the FOMC is pretty much outdoved market expectations all year, or at least since the pandemic. And I think the market isn't sure whether the Fed's going to do something next week or not. I think it's really kind of split pretty much right down the middle, 50-50. But even if they do, I would call it an upside surprise, but that hasn't necessarily resulted in narrower credit spreads throughout this year. In fact, looking back to the beginning of April, we've had five Fed meetings. And like I said, they've outdoved the entire year. But following those five meetings, spreads have been wider three times. One time in July, they didn't really move. There was no reaction. The only time we saw narrowing spreads was at the November meeting, and that wasn't even really a meeting. It came the same week as the election. No one expected anything from the Fed. And the market's reaction that week is likely reflective of incoming election results, not anything to do with the Fed. So if we throw November out, we're left with four post-pandemic Fed meetings, three of which resulted in spread widening and one that was flat. And I think that's because even though they're delivering accommodative policy tools, At every meeting, we get the press conference afterwards where the Fed talks about just how slow this process is going to be, just how long it's going to take to get employment levels back down, blah, 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 blah. And it just sort of serves as a reminder of the long and slow road ahead of us here, and maybe financial markets get a little bit ahead of themselves. So in my view, I can certainly see the argument for Fed giving a wham extension next week and that being a strong reaction in spreads. I just think that that's less likely than either the Fed keeps that bullet or ultimately they use that bullet and the market doesn't react that strongly to it. So I'm not expecting credit spreads to really move much in either direction here for the remainder of the year. But if I had to choose, I think that the rationale for expecting maybe a modest widening outweighs the potential for a slight narrowing. But either way, we're probably going to be going into 2021 either on top of or just a handful of basis points above pre-pandemic spreads of January and February of last year. And we can turn to what we expect spreads to do in 2021. Dan, what are your expectations for credit spreads in the new year? So to start off the year, I'm expecting spreads are going to very closely resemble the yield grab environment that we saw for several years after the financial crisis. There's going to be a lot of stimulus still in the system with low treasury yields and stock market indices that are fairly elevated by historical standards. And investors are going to move out the yield curve and seek extra yield. And that's going to drive spread compression. It's going to drive credit spreads narrower. And I think when you look at the outright level of yields right now, given the context of the pandemic, there's a lot of reason to think that credit spreads are unattractive right now. As we move into the first half of next year and vaccine distribution takes hold and we are able to move towards some sense of normalcy, 
there's going to be a lot more rationale to buy credit spreads at levels below pre-pandemic spreads, particularly if you're thinking about spreads not in the absolute basis point context, but as a proportion of the treasury yields that they're indexed to, the so-called yield ratio, by that metric, credit spreads are not especially rich right now. They're actually about a standard deviation wide at the index level. And so I think we're going to keep seeing the yield ratio get closer and closer to long-term norms and maybe even rich to those levels. And that implies significant narrowing in credit spreads as long as treasury yields don't move considerably wider, which is our base case. Yeah. And I think there are a few important assumptions inherent in that view, which I agree with, by the way. But I think obviously it goes without saying the vaccine needs to remain on track. I think we need to see life going back to something resembling life as normal prior to the pandemic. And I think we'll see that as well. I mean, I certainly there will, there will be some industries that are forever impacted by the pandemic for sure. But I think human nature and a desire to be social, desire to get out of the house, will result in things going back to something at least very close to normal. And I think third here is an assumption that inflation is not going to take off. Because like you said, Dan, inherent in your expectation for historically low credit spreads next year is the idea that treasury yields will remain very low. Now, I have no doubt that the Fed's going to keep rates very low for a long time. But if we start to see mounting evidence of inflation, particularly if it's durable increases in inflation, then we'll have to see long-end nominal treasury yields move higher to compensate, which should ultimately lead to wider spread. So the question of inflation will be a major one in 2021. And I think we're both of the view that inflation isn't going to be a real threat. I think we've observed diminishing returns to quantitative easing. We're not seeing further increases in the money supply flowing through to the final economy. Part of that is due to wealth disparity in the U.S. that we're only really seeing inflation on financial assets. We're not seeing really meaningful inflation on goods and services in the American economy. And then also add that to the longer term reasons to think that inflation is going to stay low, primarily including the large demographic shift that the United States is in with the baby boomers coming of retirement age and ultimately retiring and reducing consumption, being disinflationary. But then also the advances in technology, making the global economy so efficient at producing goods, which is obviously disinflationary as well. I, I just don't really see where inflation's coming from, especially when you have zombie corporations in the U.S., like we've talked about, as much as one in five zombie corporations in the U.S. really unable to increase the cost of their labor without going bankrupt. You don't see wage inflation in zombie corporations. And wage inflation has time and time again been demonstrated as perhaps the most important component of inflation, and it's just hard to see that happening. So I don't think we're going to see inflation, which then gives you the opportunity to see treasury yields stay very, very low. And that yield grab environment that you described, Dan, resulting in credit spreads moving down to the 85 basis point low on the index we saw in 2018, and in my view, probably go through that. And so far, we've really focused on the technical aspect of things, but I think there are also important fundamental reasons to think that credit spreads could reach new lows. I mean, just taking a step back from a textbook perspective, very high level, you know, there are theories on what a credit spread is constituted of, and there's a few components. The two probably most famous and largest components are the liquidity premium and the default premium. And I think that there are actual fundamental reasons to expect both will indicate narrower credit spreads in 2021. So let's take a second to talk about both of them, starting with the liquidity premium, Dan. When I talk about a lower liquidity premium in 2021, I'm referencing expectations for very, very heavy treasury issuance that will potentially erode some of the liquidity in that market and ultimately influence credit spreads narrower. Yes. So the impact of treasury issuance on credit spreads can be somewhat ambiguous. On one hand, you could have higher treasury issuance 
sort of crowd out corporate funding. And we saw something like that in early 2018 as the Fed's bill issuance sent LIBOR OIS spreads to around 50 or 60 basis points. On the other hand, the dynamic like you just mentioned could certainly be at play and could rich in spreads to treasuries. And I think in a narrow spread environment, it's likely that that impact outweighs the crowding out aspect of treasury supply. So in 2021, we're expecting, again, record treasury supply. So our forecasts indicate that if coupon auction sizes are held constant, we're expecting $2.6 trillion in net coupon supply, excluding the Fed. Now, if the Fed does not increase the pace of its purchases, that implies about $1.6 trillion net to the private market. This compares to 2020 supply figures of $1.7 trillion in net but more than that amount was taken down by the Fed. So the private market had to grapple with negative $475 billion in supply. So treasury technicals are going to become much more challenging next year, but that could bode well for credit spreads. It's worth knowing that we sort of saw this in 2019. We saw credit spreads reach very low levels in 2019, and we saw repo rates get very high as the market sort of choked on treasury supply to the point that the Fed had to introduce liquidity operations at the end of last year because there was so much collateral in the repo market, we couldn't find equilibrium. It's worth noting that net treasury supply in 2019 was $1.1 trillion as the Fed ran down their portfolio. Well, next year, even after a trillion dollars of Fed purchases, we're projecting $1.6 trillion in treasury supply. That's a 45% increase from 2019, which broke the repo market. So in 2019, we really saw the impact of heavy treasury supply more at the very high end of the credit spectrum in the SSA agency sector. But given just the huge increase in 2021 over even 2019, I think it will extend even further out the credit spectrum this time. We must acknowledge really quick, though, that the error bands surrounding our treasury forecast for next year are much wider than in years past, just given the uncertain impact of unused stimulus funds or whether we're going to have another stimulus package, a treasury cash balance at $1.5 trillion, what's going to happen there. So there is some uncertainty built in. But even in our base case scenario, $1.6 trillion, we could be off by $500 billion and still get net treasury supply that equals 2019, where we saw the big events in the repo market. So even if our projections are off, they probably will be off, but even if they are, treasury supply is going to be extremely heavy next year, and that should erode the liquidity premium that is a key component of credit spreads. And then just talking about the default premium very quickly here, we've seen for 25 years now that we could expect the Fed to ride to the rescue if there ever is a threat to the economy or an economic shock that will threaten businesses. And when we're talking about high-grade credit here, you know, investment-grade credit, we're already talking about credits that are very unlikely to suffer from asset deficiency, where we actually have assets worth less than liabilities and we have to go into bankruptcy. Rather, far and away, the largest threat to near-term bankruptcy, at least in the next, say, five years, for a highly rated issuer is insolvency, where a borrower is cut off from credit for a certain period of time and then is unable to meet short-term obligations and ultimately forced into bankruptcy, even if their assets are worth more than their liabilities. But when you have a central bank that anytime you have an external shock rides to the rescue and floods the market with liquidity and ensures that you're going to have access to capital markets, and even if you don't, then they're going to lend to you directly, like we saw for the first time with the PMCCF, which ultimately wasn't used, but the Fed rolled that out this time, then what is the threat to bankruptcy? There is a much lower insolvency risk now than compared to the index even prior to the global financial crisis. When we really saw the Fed respond with emergency liquidity facilities and the things of that nature, we saw them 
even outdo that in 2020. So even comparing credit spreads from now to say 2005 levels, that default premium should be lower now than it was in the past. Yeah, Dan, and just to add to the default premium argument, in 2020, corporates obviously raised a record amount of cash in the market. However, when you look at their balance sheets at the end of Q3 versus the end of 2019, they're not in an obviously worse place. So if you look at interest coverage ratios, those have actually improved this year, despite all of the debt issuance that they've done. And that's mostly because they're issuing debt now at lower rates and they're able to refinance existing debt at these new lower rates. And while their earnings streams were damaged in the middle of this year, They've come out of it and earnings have rebounded fairly well in the third quarter. Now, that'll probably tick down around year end and and we could see further weakness in Q1. But the credit worthiness of these corporations, just based on their balance sheets, is not significantly worse. We also have record cash reserves on corporate balance sheets, which should bode well for investors looking at the fundamental default risk of these corporations. So backing up from a high-level perspective, looking at 2021, at least in the early year, we have optimism surrounding economic recovery, a vaccine, a return to normal, intersecting with technical reasons to expect narrow spreads with a very accommodative Fed and very low treasury yields, inciting a very powerful yield grab. And then add on to that fundamental reasons from a liquidity premium and default premium perspective with heavy treasury issuance and expectations for Fed coming to the rescue. And I think all this points to historically tight credit spreads. We're going to make new record tights in credit spreads in the first half of next year, in my view, as low as 70 basis points to treasuries on the broad IG index. Maybe we'll stall out a little bit higher than that, say 75 basis points, but that's still 10 basis points narrower than the previous record of 2018. I expect that to happen in the first half of the year. And then as we get into the second half of 2021, I start to be a little more worried about credit spreads. I think that the market may start to price in some degree of Fed tapering. I don't think there's any chance the Fed will actually reduce asset purchases throughout all of 2021. But I think as long as the economic recovery continues to pace in the first half of the year and things are looking pretty good, the market will begin to basically preempt the Fed in thinking about tapering. If the Fed will start to taper in early 2022, I think the market could start to price that in later in the second half of 2022. I also think that if things are sort of on the right track through the first half of the next year, then the new administration can maybe start to move away from focusing on just the pandemic, stimulus pandemic response, and start looking at enacting the democratic platform that they ran on. And I think one of the first orders of business there will be raising corporate taxes, trying to increase government revenue somehow, just given how out of whack the budget balance is, maybe reduce deficits a little bit with tax increases, which would ultimately have a negative impact on credit spreads as well. So I think you can see the market begin to price those factors in the second half of the year. So you know, where we sit now, I'll be looking for record credit spread tights in the first half of the year, and then maybe some widening afterwards as some of those longer term factors begin to be priced in by the market. Well, then I'm looking down at my recorder, and we've been going for over 20 minutes now, which is normally about the length of one of our episodes. And we haven't yet touched on LIBOR. It's a topic I really want to get to today because we haven't recorded since we had all of the headlines surrounding LIBOR in the last week or two. And I really want to get to them today. So let's move to that topic very quickly before signing off here. Where to begin? Uh, Well, I guess let's start with the big announcement last Monday that LIBOR was being extended through June of 2023. I think this comes as a big surprise, even to us. And 
anyone who's been listening to us for a long time knows that we've been expecting a LIBOR extension. We did not think that there was a good enough answer yet to the insufficient fallback language in the US dollar cash market, particularly in loans, and that having those fallbacks be triggered was just not an outcome that was feasible. It would result in heavy litigation and perhaps even have an economic impact if those fallbacks were triggered. So we always thought an extension of LIBOR was likely, but we expected it to come in the form of synthetic LIBOR or zombie LIBOR, where LIBOR would just be set by the FCA as SOFR plus is this credit spread fallback, and that would be that. We would just be basically getting rid of LIBOR, but not totally because we had to not let those fallbacks go through Turns out that was wrong. Yeah, Dan. So the big surprise from this announcement, like you said, was not the extension of LIBOR. We thought that was going to happen. It was the extension of the panel bank submissions of LIBOR. And it's not exactly clear to us how that agreement was reached between the IBA and the panel banks, but apparently the panel banks are going to stay on through mid-2023. And this means that LIBOR, as we know it, is on track to continue to be published through the middle of 2023. The IBA announcement has a lot of implications for cash markets, but first to talk about the derivative aspect, one of the more important features of this announcement is that it did seem to solidify that a pre-cessation announcement will be given by the IBA likely in the beginning of 2021, and that has significant implications for the credit spread adjustment and when and where that will exactly set. Yeah, I mean, it would have been great if we had that clarity on Monday when they extended LIBOR. Unfortunately, they extended LIBOR on Monday, and then no one knew when to price the cessation trigger, and we saw bases and swap spreads move much narrower in response to that announcement. And then Friday, after seeing the market's reaction to the news on Monday, the regulators come out strong on Friday and basically tell us that there's going to be a cessation announcement in the early part of 2021. And we see basically a 360-degree turn in basis markets in the span of four days. Suddenly the basis recovers, swap spreads in the belly and longer move wider again, reflecting now LIBOR as it currently is produced until the end of 2023, but then a cessation trigger that will fix at the high end of our projections, which is what we were originally projecting going into the week. We're going to get, say, using the most popular figure, so for threes, in that 26 basis point range. And the basis markets have now priced pretty much to that. We're still one or two basis points below, which is probably right, considering there still is some uncertainty and that the risk lies to the downside. So, and actually it's worth noting, we've now priced better than we had at any point up until this point to those presumed fallbacks. I mean, so going into Monday, we we're probably pricing so for threes at around 23 basis points. Then we got the Monday extension of LIBOR. So for threes falls into the teens. And then we get the Friday announcement, which brings so for threes up to say 25. So it was quite a whirlwind week. I think the regulators, obviously their communication to the market was not received as it was intended to be received. And, and we're as guilty of that as anybody. So now as the dust settles, where are we? Well, we know when the cessation sugar is coming now, the basis markets have pretty much priced to that. And then regarding LIBOR, we know that it's going to be around until June 2023. So what's next? Well, I think the next big news is that alongside the extension of LIBOR into 2023 was commentary from the Federal Reserve here in the U.S. that they wanted to see no more production of loans or any products really referencing LIBOR by the end of 2021. And we haven't had much from the regulators since then. Maybe they're going to wait until the new year. But I, I really think in 2021, we're going to see a lot less carrot and a lot more stick for American banks to move away from LIBOR and start denominating products in SOFR. Uh, the home loan banks are all set up now. So even down to the community banking level, I think the Fed wants to 
start seeing sulfur-denominated assets being produced. And they're going to be taking some significant action, I think, in the next couple months to make that a reality. So I'd look out for that at the beginning of 2021. Otherwise, despite a whirlwind week, Dan, it does seem like we actually somehow have more clarity now than we have ever had before. Yeah. In terms of the pre-cessation announcement, the FCA and IBA, I think we're fairly clear that that announcement is on track to likely come around February of 2021. And that removes a lot of uncertainty, at least in the derivatives market. With the cash market, like you said, the push to move away from new LIBOR contracts is not particularly surprising. I think we knew that was going to come. And I agree with your assertion about more stick, less carrot. I think we're going to see a lot more of a strong push from regulators to make sure that these LIBOR contracts are done away with. Because this extension to 2023, it's not going to solve all of the legacy contract problems. It's going to solve most of them, but there is a need to stop writing new LIBOR contracts, at least those without sufficient fallback languages. Yeah, you make a really good point, Dan, that 2023 is going to solve most of the market's problems, but it's not going to solve all of them. And there might actually be a need for certain counterparties to get together and renegotiate contracts maturing past 2023. And we all heard that as a potential for 2021. Nobody really took it seriously. But if we get a cessation trigger announcement in the beginning of 2021, what that announcement mechanically is, is an announcement from IBA and FCA that LIBOR will not be published past 2023. And that means it will not be extended. So that was part of the reason why initially we put a cessation announcement in 2022. We didn't think that the regulators are going to turn around and say, well, we know for sure that this is now the actual date LIBOR is going to go away after they just had to extend it, after years of saying it was December 2021, then they extend it and now they say they know for sure the date. But it could also be that, hey, they're going to say to the market, hey, we've given you an 18-month extension. Now we're going to pull the trigger on the cessation announcement. This is the only extension you're getting. So now you really have to take it seriously this time. And it appears that that's the direction they're going after we got that clarity on Friday's webinar. So yeah, I think it's a really good point, Dan. People are going to have to take it more seriously, and there might have to be some renegotiation. And the wheels on all of that has to start turning in the first part of 2021. Really, it does, if we're going to not have any LIBOR-denominated new loans being produced by the end of next year. So, yeah, going forward, I think that's going to still be a very important story worth monitoring, but I don't see anything that's going to be very market-moving, for our markets at least in the near term, rather just continuing to monitor from afar now that we have a pretty good idea of where is this fallback spreads are going to set. Okay, Dan, well, we're over half an hour now, so I think it is probably time to wrap up here. We'll be back next week with our reactions to the Fed's meeting. We'll get into a bit more detail on our outlook for 2021 before we call it a year. And also want to mention that on Friday, we'll be publishing our full 2021 outlook. So please look out for that in your inboxes, and we'll be back again next week. This concludes Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.